Under the Tartan Sky, episode 27, produced 8 April 2016. It's been estimated there are some 50 million Scott diaspora, persons of Scottish descent, spread around the world. Wherever they settled, Scots played a major role in their communities and adopted countries. One pocket of such Scottish influence is found today in Victoria, British Columbia, where Scots are now working to build a new Scottish cultural center. I'm Glenn Moyer. In a moment, we'll talk about the arrival of these Scots in that then remote part of the world, their history, their longevity, and the new cultural center with my returning guest, Teresa Mackay, here under the Tartan Sky. Scotland has been changing the world as we know it for centuries, one innovation at a time. The television, telephone, even the tyres on your automobile are all possible thanks to Scottish ingenuity. And that's just the tease. In 2016, Scotland celebrates the Year of Innovation, Architecture and Design. It's a time to discover unique crafts, textiles and designs, including tartan and Harris tweed. A time to marvel at architecture both old and new, from the Scottish National Gallery in Edinburgh to Glasgow's Clyde Auditorium. A time to wonder at the engineering brilliance of feats like the Fort Bridge or the towering sculptures of the Kelpies. There's more to Scotland than bagpipes, whisky and breathtaking natural beauty. Come and experience the year of innovation, architecture and design 2016. Come and experience Scotland. In the 1840s through the 1860s, immigration out of Scotland was significant. Some of those leaving were Highlanders, in many cases forcefully evicted from their homes as the Highland economy collapsed. While some merely moved south into the Scottish lowlands, many, many others turned to the New World and its promise of a new beginning. Lowland Scots, eager for a better life, also joined the immigration. And where were they all going? Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and the USA were popular destinations. In the 1840s and 50s, Canada, in places like Ontario and Nova Scotia, New Scotland, were quite popular, with 59% of UK settlers in Nova Scotia being Scots at one time. From 1853 onwards, the U.S. was home to over 50% of all immigrating Scots, though at around the same time, Scots also made up a quarter of the population in New Zealand. Another locale popular with immigrating Scots thanks in part to the efforts of the Hudson's Bay Company, was what is known today as Victoria, British Columbia, but then was known as the colony on Vancouver Island. This large island sits at Canada's western extreme, just northwest, off the tip of Washington State, 
The city of Victoria is found right at the southern tip of this sizable island, a mere 30-minute plane ride from Seattle today. Back in the day, though, it was a five-month journey by boat from Scotland to the colony of Vancouver Island. Despite that hardship, a sizable Scottish community grew and flourished there on a 900-acre site known as Craigflower Farm. So successful were those Scots that there remains to this day a vibrant community of Scott diaspora who have recently developed a plan to honor those first immigrant settlers with construction of a new Scottish cultural center. Theresa Mackay is a member of the board of directors of the Victoria Highland Games Association that also traces its roots to those earliest Scott immigrants and their Caledonian Benevolent Society. She is a second-generation Scottish-Canadian, currently completing her Master of Letters in Scottish History through the University of the Highlands and Islands in Scotland. A self-confessed affinity Scot, having not been born in Scotland, she is owner of the Larch Grove Marketing Group, a consulting company that works with people and projects with Scotland in their soul. She's also our first returning guest on the podcast. You'll recall an earlier episode not long ago when she shared her insights into ancestral tourism to Scotland. To begin our current discussion about this newly planned Scottish Cultural Centre in Canada, Theresa took me back to the very earliest arrival of Scots on Vancouver Island and to one of the founding families, that of Kenneth Mackenzie. Vancouver Island was actually a separate colony from the mainland of British Columbia. So right now, obviously, if you look at a map and you know anything about uh, Canadian history, British Columbia is all in one. We have this big island and then we have the mainland. But back in the sort of mid-1800s and earlier than that, it really wasn't that way. Vancouver Island was a separate colony. Uh, The British government claimed it as crown land. And they hired or they um, had an arrangement with the Hudson's Bay Company to lease that land on their behalf and settle a colony in the southern tip of Vancouver Island uh, named eventually Victoria. And the reason why they did that, so we're talking like mid-1800s, and the reason why the British government wanted that to happen and made this arrangement with the Hudson's Bay Company, which was a very large and successful fur trading company, they did it because they wanted to keep the Americans out. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you very much. Sorry, but (laughs) that's the way it was. And so they said, you know, go on to this land. You can have this land, but you need to colonize it in the southern tip. And basically, they're trying to stake their claim. And what happened was uh, they set a fort in in Victoria, and they started to recruit workers uh, to work for the Hudson's Bay Company. Um, They started to recruit workers out of Scotland. So through places like Inverness and Edinburgh and uh, recruitment centers that existed in the Orkneys and the Hebrides, they recruited all of these people, all of these men mainly, uh, to come over on Hudson's Bay Company ships and work for them here on Vancouver Island. So by about 1858, roughly, there were about 500 Scots and Europeans living here, and they were living on the traditional territory of the Coast Salish First Nations, of which there were thousands. So later that year, in 1858, uh, there started to be a variety of ethnicities arriving. So not only um, Europeans, certainly English, obviously Scots, as we've been talking, and uh, Chinese started to come onto the island 
because of gold. There were rumors of gold on the mainland uh, of British Columbia, or what we now know to be British Columbia. And they came there as sort of a stopover point on their way to seek their fortunes. And later in that time period, around 1858, the whole area in southern Vancouver Island in the Victoria area exploded, essentially. There were about 225 buildings that were constructed in six weeks. So you kind of go, okay, well, what sort of buildings would be here? And you have to imagine that as people were coming here to seek their fortunes in gold and use this as a stopover before they went uh, into the gold fields in the interior, they would need things like hotels and bars and restaurants and places to hang out and that's essentially what happened so all of these buildings were constructed and that really started uh, what we now know today to be Victoria. The immigration of the Scots to that area in, in reading some of your research I was interested in the idea that the Hudson's Bay Company Um, had done this recruiting and brought these people in. Did that continue or did that essentially jumpstart a natural immigration of Scots into the area? That's a really good question. I mean, I think it definitely continued, absolutely. The Hudson's Bay Company, for those uh, of your listeners who haven't been to Canada, it still exists today. It's a department store. You go into any major city uh, in Canada, and chances are you're going to find a Hudson's Bay Company there. And it's just like what you would expect, a regular department store. Um, so it's been around for hundreds of years. And certainly that recruitment continued, but I'd say it definitely jump-started in terms of the mass immigration that eventually happened. And was that natural immigration um, in part because of the rumors of gold or were there Scots coming to the region for other purposes? Both, I would say, definitely. I mean, there are a lot of, there's a, obviously a massive settlement in Ontario, which is central Canada. Uh, and then people started to move west. Um, certainly there was the Hudson's Bay Company connection. But there was a real strength here uh, on the west coast in terms of Scots being involved in politics, in uh, leadership in government, um, in education, in religion. So it was quite interesting to see the emigration patterns, you know, coming here and looking at at the number of Scots that were here versus other cultures and the success that the Scots had here. They made a real effort to lead this community and set up Victoria as a city. In fact, on that theme, by the end of the 19th century, Victoria was often uh, referenced as a city led by Scots because of the number of Scots who had taken on those leadership roles. And that's another theme that I found that plays through the story of Victoria, British Columbia, with the Scott diaspora in general. And you've seen that here in the United States. There are a number of books written, I'm sure you know them better than I, that highlight the leadership roles that Scots are those of Scottish descent have played in in literally building the United States. And that was certainly true in Victoria. And is is it from that then that we see the establishment of these benevolent societies and social societies built around the Scott ethnicity uh, that starts to establish a Scottish identity in Victoria? Absolutely. I mean, you have to imagine you come to a community that has uh, thousands of uh, traditional First Nations residents, but has a very small, relatively speaking, small number of uh, Europeans or people of your own culture uh, as an immigrant. And coming here and uh, starting to figure out how you would succeed in this new place. You've just resettled. It's brand new. How do you succeed? How do you make money? How do you feed your family? How do you build a house? 
house, all of those sorts of things that they were faced with. So one of the first things uh, that happened in that sort of mid-1800s period was the setting up of these benevolence, or the benevolent societies, specifically from a charitable angle. So not only did they need and want to connect with each other, those people of the same sort of cultural background, Scots as we're talking about, but also they wanted to support those emigrants who were coming in from Scotland. Many of them came in, a lot of them had a job as we were talking about, about with the Hudson's Bay Company, but as well, many of them were coming across for new opportunities, wanting to leave a home that they weren't happy with in some way, shape or form. Others were coming here, you know, with basically nothing on their backs looking for new opportunities, but not a lot of them necessarily had money. And so those people who were here in Victoria, who were leaders in politics and government, they were the ones that started to set up these philanthropic associations so that they could help the immigrants who were coming from Scotland and resettling here in Victoria. And you're right, it's very much a similar pattern around the world, actually. And how that sort of evolved over time. So it started out as that charitable purpose, but really you can imagine these leaders in a community pull together this association to help people. Next thing you know, they realize what a good networking opportunity this is. (laughs) (laughs) Long before networking was a term, by the way. Exactly. And of course, it's all in person because long before internet and LinkedIn and all of those other tools we (laughs) use today. But they needed that. They had to have that. It was um, definitely a great business opportunity for people to get together. In addition, because it was a new city or a, a, a city that was building up over time, there needed to be a social schedule. Because there were people who need, they had daughters and sons that needed to get married. There were people who arrived who were single, who were looking for partners. Uh, and there needed to be something to do. What do you do on your time off? You want to meet other people and enjoy the new place that you're in. So the Scottish associations here, again, just like other Scottish associations that were set up around the world, uh, started to really impact in a positive way the social calendar of the town. And certainly that happened, um, here in Victoria, you know, they started with the St. Andrew's Benevolent Society was probably the first one. It was founded in 1860. And it had one of the largest dinners of 120 people, uh, which is quite large, considering the number of people that were actually here, the number of Europeans that were here. And then three years later, the Caledonian Benevolent Association formed. And then shortly after that, the two groups merged because they had very similar mandates. And they merged to form the St. Andrews and Caledonian Society in about 1870. So by that time, the whole society uh, calendar here in Victoria uh, was in full swing. And a large part of that was due to uh, the associations that were formed, like the St. Andrews and Caledonian Society, because they would put on things like dinners and Hogmanay celebrations and Halloween dances and picnics and things like that. And those organizations, though I guess not existent today, but those traditions uh, of that type of organization and that type of socializing has continued well over the years into an organization that you're now a part of, a member of the board, I believe, and that is the Victoria Highland Games Association. Tell me a little bit about the evolution of the organization and what its role with the modern Scottish society that's existent there today is. 
Well, and isn't that exciting, I think, that we can still, as Scott's diaspora around the world, be associated with organizations that were started long ago by the immigrants who uh, settled in certain areas. And that's exactly the same with the Victoria Highland Games Association. And it is the modern day evolution of these uh, associations that were set up in the mid-1800s here in Victoria. So it's the largest cultural association on Vancouver Island. Technically speaking, it was founded in 1938. But like I said, it really is sort of an evolution of the other associations that were in existence from about 1860. So right now it runs the largest Highland Games in Western Canada. It's in its 153rd year. So here in Victoria, we have had a Highland Games for 153 years wow. as of 2016. I know, it's really amazing. Um, and it, what was also really exciting about that, though, when we had our 150th anniversary of the Games, um, His Royal Highness, the Duke of York, was chief of the Games. And so that was fantastic. We actually had the eyes of the world on us. You can imagine all the papers in the UK were interested to see what the Duke of York was up to at the Games in Victoria. And for those who don't know royal titles, we're talking about Prince Andrew, right? Correct, Prince Andrew. And you know what was really great is that um, when he goes to the Games in places like Braemar in Scotland, uh, he has to be behind uh, ropes and he can't actually interact with a lot of the people there. You know, security, security being in the sure. Right. Exactly. Here, he didn't do that at all. He didn't want to sit behind ropes. He wanted to go out and mingle with everybody. And so I think it was it was a bit uh, it was totally exciting to have uh, him just walking in amongst everybody that was there. And we had 25,000 people attend our games over that weekend. Did he toss a caber or do anything fun like that? <laughs> no, he did a lot of talking and shaking hands and smiling <laughs> and getting pictures. But he's quite charming, as you can well imagine. So I'm involved with the uh, Victoria Highland Games in two ways, actually, or the Victoria Highland Games Association, I should say, in two ways. Uh, Primarily, it's through Craigflower Manor and Lands, which is an historic property that we lease from the provincial government. And then I also am uh, associate faculty at the School of Tourism and Hospitality Management at Royal Roads University. And as part of that role, I teach a festivals and events course to our undergraduate students in global tourism management. And one of the projects, or the main project that they work on, is producing the Victoria Highland Games and Celtic Festival. So that's how I'm involved. Okay. And this year's games are not that far away in the future. They're coming up in May. Is that right? Exactly. This uh, year's games are May 21st to 23rd. So it's three days, Saturday through to Monday. And we've got a ton of things planned for it. Well, you know, the 23rd actually happens to be my birthday. So maybe I need to make a birthday trip. That's excellent. You know, I will remember that, Glenn, for sure. You need to come up here and celebrate. What better way for you to do that? That would be wonderful. Um, I don't have any immediate trips planned to Scotland, but, you know, a trip to a Highland Games up in uh, in Canada could be interesting. I've, I've only been once to Canada before, never been to that part of Canada. So would Prince Andrew be there? Could I invite him to my birthday party? <laughs> you can invite him. <laughs> Not sure that he would come. Nothing against you. He's a busy guy. I understand. <laughs> <laughs> understand. Uh, eventually, that's where we're going with this conversation is talking about Craig Flower Manor, because as an organization, you're now using, the, am I correct, that, that the association now uses that as essentially as your office? Is that what, what the current status is? 
It is. I mean, you know, our office for years has been in everybody's basements. And, um, and then we were able to uh, obtain the Craigflower Manor and Lands. And that is sort of our central home. We also have, uh, there's another home on the property as well that we lease. And we have things in there as well. So eventually it will be our sole office space, yes. And the long-term plan is to build, and, and what I want to talk about is a Scottish cultural center there. But before we go into looking into the future, let's look a bit back to the past. What is some of the history of Craigflower Manor? Because I know it has quite a distinctive history, especially tied into the Scottish community there in Victoria. It does. And I think this is what was so exciting about us when um, the opportunity to came up to actually lease Craig Flower Manor. Because, you know, we were talking earlier about the Hudson's Bay Company and their efforts to colonize Vancouver Island. They uh, were looking at the property that was here and decided that they needed one. There were many farms and they decided they needed one big farm, about 900 acres. So that's a huge swath of land. And they needed somebody to manage that. So they hired a man by the name of Kenneth Mackenzie and Kenneth was from Haddington in Scotland so that's just a little bit east of Edinburgh and he was hired to be the island's first farm bailiff so in that was about uh, in 1852 and he ended up with that job recruiting many Scottish families to come with him and to emigrate to Vancouver, Vancouver Island, uh, and so, and to work this farm. And so he took all of those families. He took his wife, who was, whose name was Agnes, and she was 29. And he took their six children. So four daughters and two sons, ranging in age from an infant, so a baby, all the way up to 10 years, took them and all of these Scottish families who were going to work on his farm. And he put them into an H, uh, Hudson's Bay Company ship called the Norman Morrison. And they left in August of 1852 for the colony of Vancouver Island. And if you can imagine this, it took them five months to get here. And they arrived in January 1853. So can you imagine coming across the waters in a ship going to a land you've never seen before and it taking five months and you're in November and December. Uh, <laughs> and, I grow yeah. tired of an eight hour flight to Scotland, much less a five month ship voyage. Exactly. Oh. You can imagine how hard it was. And certainly for Agnes, who was only 29 and had six children to take care of and to entertain. Well, and, and, and there's the basis for your first Scottish social society right there, just in their family. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. So they arrived in January 1853. And Kenneth was assuming that he would or was told that he would get here and he would have a home. Of course, he arrived here at Fort Victoria and said, you know, you can imagine he said, all right, show me my home. Where am I living now? And they went, um, yeah, it's not. Uh, we haven't started it, sir. So he nearly according to records, he nearly turned around and left because they had promised him this home. He had this, he's got his family with him, as you can imagine, his young wife, and, and uh, they have no place to live. But they convinced him to go with them to travel up the gorge. And the gorge is a waterway that essentially connects uh, downtown Victoria in the Inner Harbor, for anybody who's been here near the big Empress Hotel. Uh, so it connects that area with where Craig Flower Manor sits today. And so they took him on a boat and 
took him up the gorge on this waterway up to see the property. And I think, you know, I suspect, and some of the other historians suspect that they did that, the people from HB Hudson's Bay Company did that, um, because they knew that the property was beautiful and that just showing him would convince him mm. to stay. So, of course, they went up. It's a beautiful waterfront property. It's, you know, the farm was massive, 900 acres. And that was obviously enough to convince him that he was going to stay. So the house was built over a period of three years and it became Craig Flower Manor. It's a two-story Georgian-style home. And it was uh, finished in 1856, and it is a National Historic property now. Um, what was really great is it was eventually transferred on to concrete block. You know, they used to build homes wood on ground, and of course that causes moisture and everything. It starts to deteriorate. So they eventually transferred onto concrete pad, which allowed it to, to uh, stay in the shape that it is today. So it was named Craig Flower Manor, but the style, interestingly enough, is very similar to Renton Hall. Renton Hall is the childhood home where Kenneth grew up in, uh, in Haddington. And I've actually seen it. I've been there and I've met the, the owner, today's owner of Renton Hall. And it's really amazing how similar the buildings look. They're very similar in style. Do you think that Kenneth had a role in the, since he arrived and there was no home, that maybe that is because he had a role in, in his design and building? Absolutely. I think he wanted it to be reflective of the place that he grew up. Uh, and you can imagine, too, being so far away from your home and your family. Um, there is a lot of sort of melancholy that goes along with that. Mm. And perhaps that was uh, his way of maybe making himself feel better, his family feel better, and, and uh, feeling more settled overall. But when he was there, you know, he built the home. And then as well, at the same time, they built a number of buildings to help run the farm. So everything from a lime kiln to a brickwork, sawmill, bakery, blacksmith shop, uh, and also a school. And the school was for the families that lived on the farm, and it still exists today. We're using the term farm because that's what it was, but in the literal sense, you're talking about really a, a mini community because, as you said, there was a bakery, a kiln, the schoolhouse, and there were multiple families who lived on this farm. So it's not like a single family farm we might relate to in modern times. It was essentially a, a small farming community. Exactly. Uh, that's exactly what it was. And there were about 21 dwellings in total on the property. And part of the role of this farm was to supply the Navy ships that would come in so with food. And um, so that was certainly part of their role. But you're right, it was a mini community and a mini community of new people and new arrivals. I don't want to put you on the spot, but is there a story behind the name Craigflower Manor? I mean, that's that's not your usual. Well, we don't have a history of, of naming our homes anymore. They do, I know, still in the UK and perhaps other parts of the world where, you know, your address is the little red house at the bottom of the hill by the flowing stream, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> Right. <laughs> and, yes. and, and we don't do that now in our part of the world, but a number of homes do have names, especially when you get into stately homes. Uh, but is there a history? Is there a significance to the name Craig Flower? I'm just curious. 
Yeah, there is actually a Craig Flower Farm. So it was actually, we call it today Craig Flower Manor and Lands because what remains now is uh, just under three acres of the 900 acres. But the actual farm was called Craig Flower Farm and it was named after Andrew Colville, who was one of the uh, original leaders in the Hudson's Bay Company. He had a farm back in England called Craig Flower so that he named it that and it just stuck from then on. Okay, well, there you go. So let's talk a little bit about this vision that the association has that, that's grown from your taking on essentially the the use and maintenance of Craig Flower Manor as an office space. And the future plan is to develop a Scottish cultural center. Tell me a little bit about that project and how it all came to be. Craig Flower Manor itself, because it's got such a strong Scottish connection and actually continues to be a, a museum inside. There are artifacts inside that really tell the story of, of the Mackenzie family. There's such a strong connection there that we felt that there, there was opportunity on the property to actually develop something bigger. So originally, uh, this this property actually is owned by the province of British Columbia. So it's owned by our provincial government. They originally put out a call for expression of interest to see who would be uh, interested in maintaining the property, essentially leasing it over time. And so we were the successful proponents in that, we being the Victoria Highland Games Association. And now, as you said, and as we've talked about, we manage uh, the home and we manage the property. But originally, uh, not that long ago, actually, uh, there used to be buildings on the property beside the manor. One of the buildings uh, right on the waterfront was a hotel. And this was years and years and years ago. People who have lived here uh, in Victoria for quite some time might remember that hotel. It has since been demolished. Also on the corner, there was a gas station. It has since been demolished. So now all that exists on that property is the manor. But there still is a space for a large building. And our vision is to create a Scottish cultural centre uh, right on the waterfront that is complementary to the manor and helps us to sort of share our Scottish culture, to, to share other Celtic cultures as well. And the vision is for it to be a gathering place for Scots diaspora uh, and also a sharing space for the community. You know, I'm a firm believer in uh, other cultures can be incredibly scary if you don't know anything about them. Mm, yeah. When you do know about them and you begin to understand their history and where they come from and why they do the things that they do, to me, it becomes absolutely fascinating. And there's, uh, you know, that sort of higher goal of tolerance and um, kindness and understanding for each other. And so this space will be exactly that. A big part of the focus of it will be on education, uh, especially youth and the public at large. So the larger vision or the big vision for this, um, this building, we're looking at a 6,000 square foot building beside the manor in the same spot that the hotel used to be. Uh, the center will include quite a big, uh, we're thinking of quite a big entrance that honors Scottish emigrants to Vancouver Island and the impacts that they've made there, including the Mackenzie family, because that's the land that it's on. Uh, there will be a large community hall for banquets and, get this, Scottish weddings, yay. Uh, yay. <laughs> 
Yes, with catering facilities there, of course. And the piece that I'm really excited about, I think probably because of my background, uh, is that there will be space for a museum, archives, and library. We don't have that. I mean, the University of Victoria here has an excellent Scottish collection. And there are other pieces uh, that we would like to uh, focus on as well to sort of be, to add to that, to add to that knowledge in the community. So that's going to be part of it. There'll be a space for a theater and a gift shop and, of course, outdoor festival space and areas for rest in addition to our administrative offices. And so the, the whole idea is for it to be a community space where people can come in, see professional theater, uh, take a look at film screenings, take part in lectures, educational courses, small conferences, and that sort of thing. A real focus for the community of Scots and the public at large here in Victoria. From this, I'm gathering, we've talked a lot about the history of the Scottish community there in uh, Victoria, British Columbia. Is there still a, uh, a very deep and rich Scottish community in the area? Absolutely. About 35% of the population here in Greater Victoria claims some sort of connection back to Scotland. And so there, it's quite massive. And, you know, I play this game with my kids. We're in the car and we drive around, you know, back to lessons and things like that. And we're driving around and I get them to tell me whether or not the street names are Scottish or not. And you would be surprised at you know, how many they actually get right. They're so used to me now. <laughs> oh, I can see it now. Oh, no, mom wants to play that Scottish game again. <laughs> exactly. And of course, you know, then I have to go in and tell them why the name is Scottish. Right. You know, so I'm sure they hate being in the car with me. But um, there are many, many Scottish uh, named uh, places, buildings, roads in Victoria. So certainly Scotland is a part of the fabric of who we are in this town. Now, you touched on the fact that the center is going to really be a gathering point, not just for Scots, but for really the entire community. And the center is going to benefit the community beyond just being a gathering point. There is an element, you talked about one of your other roles, there is an element of boosting tourism and providing additional economic benefit to the community as well that's involved in this project. Am I right about that? Yes, exactly. There's a very large uh, tourism sector here in Victoria, as you can imagine. And that's absolutely one of the uh, areas that we're looking at, certainly from a weddings perspective. You know, weddings tourism is quite huge. And I think this uh, type of a facility will be excellent for that slice of tourism. Um, we've also had, you know, we're used to partnering with a lot of other groups to help put on the Highland Games and Celtic Festival. And we uh, have been in touch with a number of these inbound operators for tourism here in Victoria, and as well as local people who like to do uh, tours. And we've had a ton of interest locally. And as well, we have had made some plans already to start connecting other Scottish tourism type places uh, that are nearby and seeing if we can really start to drive the Scottish themed tourism here in the Pacific Northwest. I have to tell you, my sister is hoping that, as you know, I'm, I'm hoping to move to Scotland. And uh, one way in, though I don't have any inroads to this yet, it is through marriage. And my sister is hoping very much that I have a destination wedding, as you're talking about, a, a Scottish tourist-type wedding. 
not so much for me, because for me, if it happened, it would be in Scotland. But the idea is a destination that my sister can go to. <laughs> <laughs> well, she we doesn't could care. do it here. <laughs> she doesn't care where I get married so long as she has a destination to get to. And, and I have no plans of getting married anyway. But I mean, just when you mentioned Scottish weddings and wedding tourism, I thought, oh, my gosh, you've been talking to my sister. I know it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's a plot, Glenn. I, I sense that. I do sense that. Well, this is a grand vision. How do you make this vision come to life? What are the funding mechanisms that are being looking looked at? And the ultimate question is, how can uh, persons like myself, listeners to this podcast, how can they uh, help in that regard in making this vision come to life? Well, and I think that's what's also really uh, incredible about this whole vision is we. this has been an idea that's been on the table uh, since we leased the Craig Flower Manor. Uh, and it's so it's been percolating away. We did a bit of a soft launch last year uh, at our Highland Games and Celtic Festival, uh, had a tent, spoke with the community about what we were looking at, what we were interested in. And over that period, which has been a very short period, one to two years, We've had people write us checks to say, this community needs this. Scott's diaspora need this here. We totally believe in your vision. Here is a check for the association. Please put it aside. And so just by that alone, we've raised about uh, 25% of our goal so far, wow. which yeah, which is really incredible. Um, yeah. And uh, I'm really, you know, I think it's given all of us a bit of a, um, a boost to keep going and make sure that this becomes a reality, which we totally believe it will. Uh, we're right in the middle. You know, the Victoria Highland Games Association is a society. We're a nonprofit organization. And we're right in the middle of um, setting up a charitable arm for the Craig Flower uh, Manor and the Scottish Cultural Centre So with the Canadian government. So that should be done shortly at which point we will do a formal kickoff for that but if people are interested in in donating money to the cause to help see, realize the vision of a Scottish Cultural Centre in Victoria all they need to do is go to victoriahighlandgames.com and you'll see on that homepage on the right hand side a little house it'll say Craig Flower Matter just click on the house and you can get more information there um, we're certainly you know would love also people who are interested in donating their time because, you know, it's not just money, it's also time. So you'll see information about how to get in touch with us at that website. And I don't want to get too far off of the manor, but uh, the two are related. Am I correct in assuming that the grounds where the manor is located is a part of, if not the primary site for uh, the Highland Games that the association hosts? Well, that's an interesting question, and I think that's a really good point, Glenn. It's not. Um, the games itself, because we see over 25,000 people each year, we need a much larger space uh. than three acres. Um, so the games are actually held at Topaz Park, uh, which is pretty easy to get to. It's fairly central, very close to downtown. It's held there, which is a massive sort of a bunch of fields all put together. During the games, we have over 300 performers in the pipe bands, for example. We've got 200 competitors for Highland Dancing, another 200 for Irish Fish, which is going to be the... Um, 
uh, largest outdoor, the first outdoor Irish fish in Western Canada. Uh, we have 12, 20 Celtic music bands performing. So it's really big and we can't actually have it on the grounds at the manor. What we will be doing in the future though is running sort of mini games there during the games weekend. Not this year, but certainly that's in our future. And in the meantime, we tend to run things or we will be running things like our Tartan Day, uh, potentially in 2017 on the space. We're still with the actual acreage, we're still making sure that it's it's visitor friendly. So it's not quite visitor friendly yet. It's pretty good, um, but we're maintaining the lands there and it takes a bit of time. And your Highland Games are not just a a Saturday and Sunday of, of fun. We're talking about an event that is what, it's a 10-day event, is that right? Yes, there's definitely the three-day weekend. That is the main attraction, but it's there are a bunch of events leading up to that as well. There's so if you're coming into Victoria for the event, come in or for the games, come in a bit early because there's stuff to do. We have a tartan parade on May 14th, and I have to say, anybody who's in Victoria who's Scottish and has anything tartan with them, <laughs> you can walk in this parade. So please come and join us. Uh, we usually meet around. 10.30, quarter to 11. On This year it'll be on May 14th. Uh, it'll be uh, starting at Centennial Square, uh, which is where the City Hall is, and then it goes right down the main street to the legislature. So it's great. People join in, and we you know, even have a caber that is walked, and we've got a bands and everything, so it's great fun. So that's on the Saturday. On the Sunday, there'll be the Kilted Golf Tournament. So if you're a golf fan, that's a place to go. And then if you really like to drink, then the best thing to do is join us at the Tilted Kilt Pub Crawl on May 18th. That's a Wednesday night. And it's the most fun ever. There are four different teams. We each wear different colored shirts and we rotate in amongst four different bars uh, in downtown. And we go from bar to bar on a double decker bus that has uh, its own piper and Highland dancers. So we pipe ourselves into the pub, <laughs> if you can imagine. I'm getting a sense of the flavor of it, and it's that's my kind of competition. I, I could be down. I'm not sure about the golf and, and the parade, but I could be down for the pub crawl. Exactly. It's great fun. And I'm always quite surprised at the Highland dancers, who I know quite well, who are the older ones, of course, because they have to be legal age to get into the pubs. But they'll be dancing after they're on like their fourth pub. And I go, how can you dance after having had a beer? Like, <laughs> no. It's amazing, though. It's so much fun. And I'm, sure, I'm sure the quality of the dancing um, gets better as the quality of the pub crawl goes or the length of the pub crawl goes. Exactly. Maybe, not, maybe not for the dancer, but certainly certainly for those viewing it. <laughs> it looks great no matter what they're doing. <laughs> Absolutely. By you know, yeah, and so that's great fun. And then um, we also have on the evening of the 21st, which is the Saturday, so this is during the actual games period, we have a clan torchlight ceremony that happens down at the BC legislature. So we have this beautiful building here in Victoria. Victoria is the capital of the province of British Columbia. So we have our uh, government building here, which is a historic building. And we do a clan torchlight ceremony there and, and uh, welcome all the clans into Victoria. And then during the games, I mean, really, we have some of the top performers. We've got the best pipe band this year, the best pipe band from Canada being the Simon Fraser University Pipe Band. Oh, yes. Uh, we have them coming as well as the best pipe band from the USA, the L.A. Scots. 
So they're both going to be there this year, and that makes it really fun. Um, we've also got a professional PBROC competition, uh, Victoria's own James, James P. Troy. He recently won the Open PBROC at um, Kansas Winter Storm. So if, you know, if any of your listeners know anything about piping, they'll recognize his name. He's actually from Victoria, so he's going to be here as well. And then we have the Canadian Invitational Drum Major Championship. We've got five-time world champion Jason Paggio from San Diego, and as well the pipe major and bass drummer from the New Orleans pipe band Kilts of Many Colors will be here too. And of course we have the Victoria International Heavy Event Challenge, so I could go on. But there's a ton of stuff to do over the three days, so it's really worth coming up to have a look. And the association, despite the name, the Victoria Highland Games Association, beyond putting on what sounds to be an amazing 10-day celebration there, you're also involved in projects that promote the Scottish community and Scottish culture, et cetera, on a year-round basis, I believe. We do. We do. Um, we have Highland Dance competitions here uh, on in Victoria. We do that about three times a year. We also do a burn supper. I mean, who can we have to be an association if you're going to have burn suppers, right. you know, so burn supper on Robbie Burns Day. And we do it as a fundraiser partnership with the Greater Victoria Police Pipe Band. Uh, we also do Tartan Day. Let's get back for a moment to the cultural center and the vision for that. Is there a time frame in place as to, I'm, I'm guessing construction has not started yet, uh, but when that might be happening and, and long-term vision, when do you see this coming, uh, this vision being turned into reality and put into use? No, construction hasn't started yet. You're totally right. There's a lot of uh, community consultations that we have to do yet. Certainly the province of British Columbia is is aware of our plans. That was part of of our proposal to them for the lease that we originally applied for. And so they're certainly aware, and as is uh, the local sort of city councils and that sort of thing. But there are a lot of community consultations that have to happen yet because we want to make sure that it's right for both the Scottish and Celtic communities, but also the larger community at large. Uh, We're suspecting that um, that's going to take place over the next sort of two to three years, in which case from then on, we see the construction happening. So, you know, if I was to predict, who knows, you know, these things take time. But if I was to predict, we'd start looking at construction in about three to five years time. Okay. We started this conversation talking about the history of the Scottish community in and around Victoria, British Columbia, the immigrants who came over with the Hudson's Bay Company, uh, the McKenzie family, etc. If we go back to that moment in time and with a crystal ball, what do you think the Scots of that era would think about plans for this Scottish cultural center and the evolution uh, that that is going to bring with it and all it will mean to the community. How do you think they would view something like that? Oh, I, you know, I think I have this vision of them as, as you're sort of talking there, Glenn, about them standing on Craigflower Farm and really just smiling because you can imagine when people came over here, when immigrants, when our Scots uh, forefathers came over here, they had they really wanted to make a go of it. Uh, They had really high hopes and a lot of dreams and wanted it to be successful. So to know that this many years later, we are stronger than ever. Scott's diaspora on Vancouver Island, especially in Victoria, 
is stronger than ever. Um, you know, we have essentially reclaimed the home that was built for um, a Scottish emigrant family on a property that a lot of Scottish emigrants worked uh, on. And we've reclaimed that. We start are starting to have a real focus in terms of a physical focus for our culture. I think they would be standing proud Um you know, and taking a look at us and going, way to go. You know, we started this and you guys are continuing it. And so that's fantastic. And I think it, overall, I'm really proud of being a Scots Canadian. And it's a really a great time to be a diaspora Scot in the Pacific Northwest. My thanks, as always, to my guest, Teresa Mackay of the Victoria Highland Games Association. For more on the subject of Scottish immigration, you might want to check out our earlier episode, episode 13 when my guest was Dr. Tanya Bultman, one of the world's leading authorities and a noted author on the subject. You'll also find links for more information on Scottish immigration, the Victoria Highland Games Association, and the proposed cultural center in our show notes on the website at www.underthetartansky.scot. And whether you listen on iTunes or the website, and especially if you listen via the website, please take a moment to find us on iTunes and give the podcast a rating, and if you don't mind, write a brief review. Each rating and review helps others to find us on iTunes, and it grows our audience. And of course, we're always happy for you to share news of this podcast with your friends. Until next time, I'm Glenn Moyer. Tapalev, Agus Alpha Dubra. Under the Tartan Sky is a production of Glen L. Moyer Creative Communications and is not affiliated with any Scottish tourist organisation or business. For show notes and more information on this and all Under the Tartan Sky episodes, please visit our website at www.underthetartansky.scot. And while you're there, check out our online shop where you can buy exclusive Under the Tartan Sky logo apparel and other items. Have an idea for a future episode? Well, get in touch via email at info at underthetartansky.scot. Visit and like our page on Facebook and follow us on Twitter, where our username is at underscore tartansky. That's the underscore symbol, tartansky. And thank you for listening.